our verse, memory verse for this past week, uh, reminded us of the great wisdom that God uh, desires to grant to his children, and how if we would simply ask, if we want to know, what do I do, Lord, if we would simply ask uh, God who is gracious will give to us as his beloved children. This week, we are uh, going to be memorizing Romans 12, um, verse, it's verse 2, isn't that right? <laughs> Am I right in that? Can we get the slide up on that? Yes, thank you. Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, it just so happens that this week, that's the context of our passage. So we're going to be looking this morning at verses 3 through 13. But I want to begin back in verse 1 to kind of set the stage for us. Romans 12, beginning verse 1. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each one, a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith or in service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation, He who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. By abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. The title of this sermon is A Gospel Church Culture. A Gospel Church Culture. We must be defined as a church in our culture, just the way we do things, we must be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I desire this morning, uh, Christian, that you, that you would help change the culture of our church. That each of you would help in changing the culture of our church. Now, some of us might be thinking, wait a minute, I didn't know that our culture needed changing. Well, as we're going through this um, series on doing church God's way, on being a biblical church is the idea. Again, a reminder that we are simply walking through this pamphlet that's in the back table. This is our church. This is our mission statement, our vision statement, if you will. This is our DNA. This is what makes us what we are as a local body. We've already looked at the fact that uh, we are called in in Scripture to be Christ-centered and and also to uh, preach the word of God in the weeks past. Last week we looked at discipleship and leadership development and what that means for our church and, and, and all the ways that we can fulfill that as a local body. Today we're looking at family-based ministries and especially focusing in on body life. And then in the in next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at uh, the outward aspect, community outreach and worldwide mission as the great commission of the church uh, I've been here for five years, coming on in March. Praise the Lord for that. And um, 
I've noticed, you know, you can get to know somebody in a span of five years, I think. Uh, I've gotten to know you, and you've gotten to know me. And um, I have noticed that in all of these other areas, God has been graciously granting us growth. I truly believe. I, I think in our commitment and love for the Word and the instruction of the Word, I think we've grown in that. I know I've grown. Um, in, in our uh, Christ-centeredness, I see a, a greater zeal for the glory of Christ, and it just comes out. It oozes out from our, from our language as I fellowship with the saints here in this church. Discipleship culture has been something that for long decades past has been all but completely missing in this church. But by God's grace, we have been adopting this biblical mindset of discipleship in pouring our lives and, and, and hearts and our instruction into others that need help to walk and be stronger in Christ. Uh, we, have gone, we have grown leaps and bounds in that area. Leadership development, God has been gracious uh, to us in, in uh, raising up men, and we are in the midst of training up men, and I'm excited for what the Lord would have for these men in the church as, they continue to, to, as we continue to lead this church. And then community outreach and worldwide mission. I, I think that we are strong in that area in a sense. Of course, there's always room to grow. But uh, I, I, I think that because we love the Lord, we want other people to know about him. So I often and regularly hear of you, brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel of Christ with those around you at the workplace or at home. And the, the fact that we regularly have somebody to baptize is evidence that the gospel is at work in and through you all. However, in my observation, as well as in the observation of trusted uh, saints in this church who have been here much longer than I have, and I've talked to them in recent history just to make sure that I'm not off base, and all have agreed with me. If there's anywhere where we lack as a local body in this church, it is in the aspect of body life. If there's anywhere where we have the most room to grow and where in the f last five years and even beyond that, uh, there has been minimal growth in our church, it is in this. And I say that with a qualifier because there are many among us that do serve and that do uh, get involved in one another's lives. And so this isn't across the board, because we certainly know that there is, a, you could say, a kind of a faithful uh, a core to our church that is fully devoted, and it just shows, where they don't say no uh, to the ministry. They don't say no to helping somebody. They don't say no to caring for someone in a personal matter. Uh, people step up, and I've seen those grow by leaps and bounds. However... If we're talking about a whole church, I think if there's anywhere where we need to focus and where there is a need for a stronger exhortation this morning, it's here. And I think that shows in the fact that as I was uh, writing this sermon this week, this just flowed the easiest. This was the easiest sermon to write because there's just been so many things that have been on my mind and on my heart uh, in the life of this church where, you know, I think this verse speaks directly into uh, our church life. And so I would ask you, dear church, to humbly receive the word of God, to come here wanting to honor the Lord. If there's, any, if there's any, ever been any one mark in this church is uh, you, brothers and sisters, just want to honor the Lord. You want to exalt Christ. That's a given. You love the Lord, and you want to you serve Him. You want to live for Him. You want to honor Him. But sometimes, we either develop bad habits, or we be, believe lies, or we get comfortable. And my desire, though I know one sermon cannot change the world, I desire that this, at least this one sermon, would would uh, be like a bit of smelling salt in our local congregation.
Each believer, if we are to be a, if we are to have, excuse me, a gospel church culture, each believer must strive to be marked by three things. Humble unity, zealous service, and loving care. Humble unity, zealous service, and loving care. First of all, in this passage, we see that we must be marked by humble unity. He begins in verse 3. For through the grace given to me. Now, what grace is he talking about? Of course, this connects us to verse 1, where it says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercy of God. And then he begins chapter 12, which is the rest of the book. Uh, He begins to unfold the practical outworkings of everything that he's been teaching and and writing in this letter. Up to this point, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans has been laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he comes to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, By the mercies of God, may that urge us to do something. All of our lives, all of this church, is by the mercies of God. And Paul understands that in our verse here, in verse 3, he says, For through the grace given to me, he lays that out front. He says, look, we are all partakers of grace, myself included. What he's saying here is none of us deserve a position or praise or respect. All of us, all of us, myself included, deserve hell and unending punishment from a just and righteous God for our sins. But the glory of the grace that was given to us is but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, gave us life, raised us from the dead, forgave us of our sins, and makes us what we are today. Grace is the powerful activity of God in our lives that comes from His love for us. So this means, what Paul is saying, that everything that you are, everything that you do, is from Him. It's the product of His grace, His working. Now this affects the way that you look at yourself, as it did Paul. It establishes, you know what, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to be a part of this church. I don't deserve to to lead a ministry. I don't deserve to be used by the king. I don't deserve any accolades or praise. Christian, are you thankful just to be here? Or do you come here with a sense of entitlement where it better be good enough for you? This also affects the way that you look at one another. He goes on, I say to each one among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You see here, humility is the key to unity. Humility is the key to unity. And it comes from the gospel, as we just saw. The wording here specifically is uh, when it says not thinking too highly of yourself. The idea, the wording is, is to overthink or to overestimate yourself. So dear saint, don't think too much of yourself. Don't think you have it all together. Don't think that you have reached some status. None of us have. We are all the product of grace. And this comes from a right understanding of the grace of God in the gospel. That I have sinned against a holy and perfect God. And just as, if, just as there is a difference between when, when I mistreat a, a stranger to when I mistreat a police officer, 
officer to when I mistreat a president? How much more so when we mistreat or reject or live in rebellion against the creator of the universe? He is eternal, so our offense is eternal. That's why eternal judgment is just and right. It's because you could never pay off the guilt. But God sent his son to die on the cross in our place to take our guilt for us so that we would not drink one drop of his wrath, but rather drink in the full wealth of his grace and forgiveness and love. How can we be prideful knowing that? Now, the historical context here helps us understand the nuance of this, and I think this might feel familiar for some of us. The Church of Rome at this time was going through some inner church conflict, you could say. When Paul wrote this letter, they were having some disputes within the church, some tension within the church. Now, the background is originally the church in Rome was mostly made up of Jews. But when the emperor Claudius began persecuting the church, the Jews were an easy target because they were equated with the church, and there wasn't that distinction yet. So the Jews, the, the believing Jews, were the, were the, were the bulk of the, the, the church, the New Testament church in Rome. And when the emperor Claudius began to persecute, he, he banished all Jews out of Rome. And what happened is, in their place, evangelism, the gospel kept on going, that those local churches began to fill in with Gentiles. Non-Jews. And eventually, as time went on, some years later, about three years or so before Paul wrote this letter, uh, that banishment, that exile had been lifted, and so all the Jews were welcomed back into Rome. And you can imagine these Jews, believing Jews, come back to their home church, and it does not look or sound like their church. See, you can imagine the difficulties, the, the strained relationships that would exist in that kind of situation. The mentalities of, well, this is my church, not yours. Or, that's not the way that we've always done things. You see that? This, that kind of thinking, that kind of mentality is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. To think. Amen. And it comes from pride. And it is not the product of the gospel. Dear church, we are all sinners. We were sinners. We are sinners saved by grace. Amen. And so practically, what does this look like? Don't think of yourself as better or higher or more worthy of praise over another person in the church. It doesn't matter how long you have been attending the church. It doesn't matter how many ministries you are involved in. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how better behaved your kids are. It doesn't matter how well you dress on a Sunday morning. We all come to God in Christ in desperate need of grace. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you felt like you've been stagnant in your walk? Have you felt like your home life just isn't what it should be? Have you felt like it's just been so hard to, to make ends meet? Could it be possibly that uh, it comes as a product of God's discipline, that he is opposing the proud in you? If, we, if you would repent and become humble, God will give you grace, though. The only reason, Christian, that you can boast is the grace of God. So we don't think too highly of ourselves, but how do, so how do we do think? Paul goes on in verse 3. 
but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted each a measure of faith. How do you think? You think biblically, plain and simple. Think biblically. Sound thinking comes from a sound mind, a mind that is sensible, a mind that is clear and sober. It is a mind that is saturated with the truth of the Word of God. Think with a sound mind, Christian, not with your emotions. Because that's the opposite of the sound mind. It is uncontrolled, undisciplined. It's all over the place. The sound mind is a, is a mind that has, been, has, been, uh, that has, as it were, bit and brittle uh, in it and is steered by the Holy Spirit and the truth of God. And he says, if you think this way, you'll realize that the truth of the matter is that we all, as we all live and as we all serve Christ, we live and serve by faith, he says. To think so as to have sound thinking, and what is that? God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So the, the, the remedy to pride and, and false thinking and elevating yourself over another is to remember that God has given you a measure of faith and other people their measure of faith. And this shows, faith shows in how you live. Faith shows in how you live. You will not do much if you don't believe that God is able. You won't give if you don't think God will provide for you. You won't evangelize if you don't think God will save. You won't evangelize if, God, if you don't think God will protect you. You see, you do out of faith. And just because one person has more faith than another, which shows in how they obey and serve the Lord, even that faith is not a grounds for boasting, Paul says. Your measure of faith is not grounds for pride over another's measure of faith, saints. Because even your faith, even your faith has been given to you by God. Now, just because you have a little faith and are doing little or it shows, that doesn't mean that you are excused from growing in your faith and being pushed by your brothers and sisters in your faith. You can't just say, well, I don't have faith. I got the faith of a mustard seed, and so I just serve a mustard seed size. Or I obey the size of a mustard seed. No, that's, that's uh, rebellion. That's disobedience. God says to believe in him and then to live accordingly. Now, Paul goes on in verse 4, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we are many. Now, this illustration of the body and the body parts, the members, you know, a human body with arms and legs and fingers and, and all the other parts of the body, it's a very familiar illustration that's given by Paul. He says the same thing in different ways in other passages, like uh, 1 Corinthians 12 especially. But this language of, of, of the church as a body and individual people within the church as members of a body is all over the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, especially in his letters to churches. So think about this. If Paul points to this reality, to this illustration, in a number of different letters to different churches all over the, the place, then we must conclude that, that this truth, this truth of body life in a local church, this must be a truth that we really need to understand and practice as a church. He gives this to all of these different churches that are in all these different places. It must be incredibly important for all churches, including ours. Now, what's being taught here? 
Well, the, the simple reality is that there are all different kinds and types of people in the church. People in different places in their walks, especially. That's the context. There are people in every church, our church included, and it should be so. Uh, there are various people in various different stages in their growth and in their faith. This is on purpose by God. And it's even on purpose by God that there would be among us some who profess faith, are even signatory members of the church, but are tares or unbelievers. And we'll never know until the very end. All of that, that, that range from, from the unbeliever to you know, the, the, the one that has been faithful for years and serving the Lord and such a wonderful example for the Christian life and everything in between, that whole range is on purpose by our Heavenly Father. Why? Well, He placed those immature or difficult people here for you to grow. Not only are there many different people in different stages of their growth, but there are many different ways in which uh, each person contributes to the health and function of the whole church. He says that we are many, many different kinds. He's going to go on to the the gifts in, in a moment here. But he says, we who are many, he says, are one body in Christ. So though there is vast diversity and range within every local church, no matter our differences, we share all in common the most special and important thing, Christ. This is an unchangeable reality for us all. We all are one body. We do not become one body. We are one in Christ. And our union is indeed in Christ and Christ alone. That is our primary identity. Above your family name, above your ethnicity, above everything. Above your career, above your income, where you live, your zip code. Above all of it, I am a Christian. And all those things are way down on the list. They do not identify me. Now, we're familiar with that, aren't we? In the homosexual and the transgender revolution that is happening all around us, it's all about sexual identity. When did sexuality become what you are? It's uh, it's a twisting of the human uh, makeup, and especially in, a, in the transgender mindset, it is separating body from soul to say my soul is one thing, but my body is another, when the reality is in Scripture, both are made in the image of God, and he doesn't mess up. But we're used to that language, identity, right? Your identity. It's not in your sexuality. Your identity is not in your political persuasion. Your identity is not in your race or ethnicity. Your identity is that you are a child of the Most High God. A fellow heir with Jesus Christ. And a citizen of heaven. That is your identity. What does this mean practically? What does this mean for us as a church? This means that Christ is the defining and uniting bond between each and every one of us. He is what we share in common, above everything else. This means you should not come here because your children or your parents or your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews Come here. We are all family. 
And that bond of Christ must be stronger than our bonds between one another by blood. One practical way that our union in Christ will show in this is when you get outside of your family bubble on a Sunday and you go pursue fellowship and conversations with somebody else who is not part of your biological family. This must happen. And don't get me wrong. Those relationships are a blessing from God and we should celebrate them and bask in them. But they're not the main thing. And you should not give those attention to the expense of others. He goes on. We are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So by being united together in Christ, our union is not superficial. We're not just part of the same organization. We're part of the same family. And Paul is going to go on and teach us that one way to strengthen our bond with one another is by serving one another. Church, every member must own up to their own individual responsibility to be a functioning member of the church. Individually, members of one another, each and every one. Each person, especially if you're a member of this church, each person must do their part in joining the different gatherings of the saints, giving to the support of the ministry, serving in various ministries, and being connected in meaningful relationships with various people in the church. That's what it means to be a member of one another. Each person in a local body. Why is this true? Why is this important? Because each member in the local body is essential and vital for the health of that local body. If we don't all buy in, then we are held back. If we have a percentage who don't buy in, then we are unhealthy as a church. Dear, dear saint, if, if you feel like you're kind of an outsider, or, or it's just you're not sure if this is your church, or, or, or you feel like you know, there's all of these families, and, and I don't, I'm not in those families, and so I feel outside, or, or vice versa. If you're part of a family, and, and you've forgotten about those other brothers and sisters in the faith, we all need to be reminded that God has tailor-made each and every one of us for this church. You are here for a specific reason. And your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to figure out what that purpose is. What that looks like in your life. And the impact that you can have on those around you. So, being united together in Christ and relating to one another in humility, we are now commanded to serve one another. Verse 6, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The diversity of the body is seen in our spiritual gifts most clearly. And here only a short list is given, but you can look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, four other lists to kind of fill in uh, some of the gaps that are here. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, he's talking about spiritual gifts and the diversity of all of those giftings from the Holy Spirit to each and every believer because every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and every single believer has a spiritual gift. But the point here is just like faith is allotted to each Christian, so also this grace of spiritual gifts is allotted to each and every individual Christian in different ways. And once again, that, that platform of pride that we tend to prop ourselves up on simply because I have a different gift than, than someone else, that platform of pride is ripped out from underneath us. Just because one person has the gift of teaching does not make that person better than another. 
That person simply received a different gift than you did. But your gift is essential for the health of the church. And we can't do this without you. So whatever gift you have from God, God does require you that you use that gift in the life of the local church. If you are a Christian, God commands you to serve. Why? Because he's given you a gift to serve with. Now he goes on here, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith or service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation. The point here in this clump of uh, spiritual gifts explained, the point here is faithfulness, to simply use our gifts the way that they were meant to be used. And we start with prophecy, and it's mentioned here because this letter was written at about 57 AD. Most of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Only about five letters to churches, epistles, and, and none of the Gospels had been written at this point. Of, of, of Paul writing the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans. So prophecy in the local church was the main way that the Lord spoke to his people. They couldn't really open the scriptures and say, turn to Matthew whatever and let's look at the life of Christ. That had to come by direct revelation from God in a church service. We don't need that anymore because we have the once for all finished and delivered faith. Uh, we have the complete word of God, so we don't need more prophecy. All has been revealed. But nonetheless, the main point in these four examples, prophecy, service, teaching, and exhortation, you can see that it is in agreement with the faith. faith and prophecy is in agreement with the faith. That is, it doesn't contradict Scripture. And service, if you have the gift of service, serve. That's the idea. If you have the gift of teaching, Teach. If you have the gift of exhortation, exhort. It's just the idea, be faithful to serve. Be faithful to use your gifts. The faithful use of, in the early church, faithful use of the gift of prophecy was the kind that agreed with the rest of Scripture. Faithful use of the gift of serving, teaching, and, and exhortation was seen in simply doing the work of serving, teaching, and exhortation. Some of us might have the gift of teaching, or exhortation, or encouragement, but specifically the gift of teaching. Some of us may have the gift of teaching in this church, uh, but are hesitant to be used in that way, for whatever reason. What this is saying is that hesitancy, that reluctance to be used the way that God has gifted you, that is disobedience. It's unfaithfulness to the Lord. So you might ask, well, how do I know my gift? So the way that you will know your gift is only by first getting busy, involved in ministry. Wherever there's a need, if there's a need, you fill it. That's your spiritual gift right now, in a sense. Your spiritual gift, if you're not serving, is that, you can, that you're available to serve. But over time, through your labor, through the study of Scripture, and through the affirmation of the church, other saints, you will begin to get some measure of clarity on your specific gifting, and you can hone your ministry accordingly. But that takes quite a bit of time and thought. The main thing here is just be faithful to do something because God has gifted you to do something. And there's no gift, there's no spiritual gift for nursery. <laughs> there's no spiritual gift for cleaning, in a sense. There's just need. And so just do that and get busy serving. Be faithful to use that gifting that God has given you. But not only is the emphasis here on faithfulness to serve, there's an emphasis here on how you do your service. He says, he who gives with generosity. Uh, this is in uh, the middle of verse 8. He who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
So the emphasis here is that in your service, you are not to be mediocre in your ministries. Let me say that again. The emphasis here is that in your service, Christian, wherever you serve, you are not to be mediocre in your ministries. You see, the wording here changes from, from if you have the gift of teach, then just teach, to use your gift with zeal and passion. And he says it in, in these ways. If you have the gift of giving, then do it generously. If you have the gift of leading, do it with diligence. If you have the, the gift of mercy, then do it with a heart of cheerfulness. See, it goes above and beyond. And it gets to the heart, the source of this, a source of passion, zeal, and love for Christ and his people. So if you have the gift of giving, then generously, that, that is given ways that rise above your quote-unquote normal giver. If you have the gift of leadership, then, then throw yourself into that role of leadership with diligence and, and eagerness and urgency. If you have the gift of mercy, then care for others, not simply to get the job done and get the food delivered or whatever else, but do it with a heart of cheerfulness and happiness and joy that you get to wash the feet of the saints just as Christ did. The point here in this, in this triad of, of exhortations in service, in body life, is good enough is never good enough. Good enough is never good enough. And it should not be with you, dear child of God. Nothing short of your best efforts is expected in every church ministry. Whether it's preaching or teaching, whether it's caring for little ones, whether it is vacuuming or sweeping or mowing a lawn, whatever it is, give your very best. You should be able to walk away from your service, from your ministry, saying, I did the best that I could. Now, what's liberating is God does not require you to say, I did the best. Right? He doesn't require you to say, I am the best at this. He doesn't require perfection in your service because we are fallen Redeemed, but yet fallen. God simply requires you to be able to say that you gave him your best. So church, in your ministries, go above and beyond what is asked of you. If you're asked to fold the, the chairs, well, we don't have folding chairs, but we do at times. If you're asked to fold the chairs, then fold the tables too. Or if you're asked to fold the chairs, put them away too. Or whatever else. If you're asked to usher, to be an usher in our church, then, then don't just seat people in their seats, but get to know them. Establish relationships. Follow up on prayer requests or, or those new people to our church. If you're asked to uh, teach in any capacity, whether it's from the pulpit or, or, or if it's in a home group, or uh, in a discipleship context, or if it's uh, to children. If you're asked to teach, then throw yourself into the study. And don't just regurgitate lessons. Always be thinking, how can I make this, or how can I do this better? That needs to be our mindset. How can I do this better? How can I make this ministry better? Christian, don't lose sight. You are serving the king. You're serving the king who has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he sits at the right hand of the most high God on high. 
and he watches you and delights when you serve him. Don't give him mediocre, mediocrity. Don't give him good enough. Give him the best that you can. Are your efforts in your ministry worthy of the king? Oh, be faithful, Christian. God has gifted you and he desires, he longs to use you for the good of others and his glory. By faith, step into that and be used by him in great ways. Now, as we serve one another with zeal and humility, Christ does not want us to neglect the state of our hearts as we serve. And the state of the souls of one another. Third, loving care. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Genuine love is the hallmark of the church of Christ. And Jesus tells us that this is how the world knows that we are his. John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus tells us that this is the, the, the defining mark of the Christian. Love not for him, love for the fellow Christian. Not for your spouse or for your grandchild or for your family member who happens to be a Christian, but love for one another. The love that is required is genuine love, true love, authentic love. It's not a love in word only, but rather it is a love that proves itself in action. It is not a love that ebbs and flows with your emotions or feelings on any given Sunday. It is an unchanging, committed, and sacrificial love that comes from the heart that has been melted by the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does that genuine love look like? Well, first, it looks like holiness. He says, by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. We prove our love for one another by seeking holiness in the lives of one another. Genuine love will do what it takes to help a fellow brother or sister be more like Christ. And the wording here is extremely strong. It says, abhorring what is evil. And the point is, abhor what is evil, not just in your own life, but in your brother's or sister's life. It is to, to, to abhor, is to hate with great violence. It is to vehemently be against, to be disgusted with something. Now, again, of course we hate those sins in our own lives. I do. But do you hate the sin in your brother's life or your sister's life? Does that matter to you? Does it grieve your heart when a brother or a sister is in sin? whether it is a sin of, of commission or sin of omission? Do you hate that sin in that person? Are you willing to do anything to help them drive that out of their lives? Church, it is loving to point out areas in another's life where they can grow. It's not confrontational or anything else, not harsh. It's loving this is genuine love. Whether it's the way that you talk or treat your spouse or speak to your children or are raising your children, whether it's the way that you serve, whether it's your attendance or your giving or anything else that Christ commands you to do. Together, as a local body, we are to be helping one another forsake sin and seek righteousness. So, dear saints, be willing to give and accept rebuke, exhortation, help, and encouragement. We need all of those things. He says also that we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. 
genuine love, authentic love, has a mindset that it's not about me. It's not about me. Remember, humility is the key to unity. So the kind of devotion and love here mentioned is the kind of devotion and love that a mother has for her child or one family member has for another. Now again, I know that there are a lot of families in this church. And again, that's a wonderful, gracious gift of God. It's a delight to gather and to see uh, generation after generation that the truth and, and the gospel of Christ is passed from generation to generation. And we bask in that and we rejoice over that. Absolutely. But with that, sometimes we come on a Sunday, can't we? And we, we can't wait to see our beloved family members again. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but remember this. Christ calls you to have those same longings to see a family member again, to have the same longings and affections for the other people in the church as well who aren't your family members because they are part of the same family of God with you. So I'm not saying don't hug your family members. I'm saying don't show them affection when you give another brother or sister the cold shoulder. Paul here also calls us to think of one another's needs first, before our own, to prefer that other person as more important than yourself. The point here is that their needs are more important than your needs. And that must be your mindset. One way that this can, we can foster this is, is speaking truth and encouragement to one another. Each person, I guarantee you, each person in this room and in the overflow or wherever else, each person in this church today needs encouragement. I think that goes without saying. Do you need encouragement? I do. Every one of us does. That means then, then show up ready to encourage. Each person needs that word of encouragement, and each of us needs to give the word of encouragement. God wants you to deliver that word of encouragement. And for you to think of how shy I am and how you know I'm self-conscious, that's the problem. You're not thinking about them as more important than self. You see? You are not giving preference to that other person with honor. You're honoring your feelings and your comforts over theirs. Shyness is selfishness. He goes on. Again, exhorting us to be zealous in this work, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So again, Christ commands you to not hold anything back whenever you serve his church. To lag behind in diligence is the idea of hesitating in your eagerness to serve. It is to come up short in the zeal that you ought to have and, and give to a ministry of the church. You should come with the mentality that you will not let anyone outserve you today. I once heard of a man who uh, was a pastor at a church and he was involved in uh, caring for, he showed up on a Saturday for a, uh, for a you know, the, your classic church cleaning uh, and uh, there was some work to be done on the property and this pastor was, you know, getting his, getting his hands dirty. And one of the saints comes up to him and says, oh, Pastor, you shouldn't be doing this. You're the pastor. And to which that pastor replied, I am not going to let you outserve me. That should be your mindset as well, church. There should be a kind of, you know, holy competition, as it were. 
A kind of holy competition of who can love, who can serve, who can encourage, who can help the most. Not to get accolades, but, be, but out of love and as an overflow of grace. Don't be satisfied with the status quo, Christian. Rather, be fervent in spirit, he says. Literally hot or boiling over, bubbling, welling up, or even it's used glowing with love and devotion and service towards one another. You should be busting at the seams to, to, with your zeal and your desire to be a blessing to someone else. So what does this look like? Do that thing that you feel no one else is doing. Don't wait for the church to create fellowship events for you. They're saying, maybe uh, you just need to make an appointment or, or just invite somebody to your home or out for lunch. Don't wait for the church to coordinate your fellowship. If the only time that you fellowship with the saints is when the church programs it for you or schedules it for you, then you have a diminished and deficient understanding of body life in a local church. Dear saint, maybe your heart has become lukewarm in its devotion to Christ and his church. Your Lord beseeches you in the book of Revelation, repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Remember when you first were overcome by the love of Christ? Be overcome again. And do those deeds of zeal that you did at first. Just a couple more. He says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer. Part of the life of the church is to have times of difficulty. There will be times of hopelessness when it seems nothing is going to get better or change. But Christian, you must place your hope in God and rejoice at the fact that you have a God who will never fail you. The church is full of people that will fail you, but not God. There will be times of affliction as well when people and circumstances in your life, in this world, will seem to all oppose you in your quest to glorify God, but you must persevere. That is, you must never give up. You must never surrender. In complete dependence on God for strength, you must be resolved in your soul that when things get difficult, you will not run. And the kind of, this kind of strength, this kind of mindset in, in the midst of a storm will be yours if you, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. That is, you must commit to God, to going to God for wisdom, joy, hope, perseverance, strength. If you go to him for these things, he is a giving and generous God, as we've been remembering this past week. And he will help you without scolding you. See, trials will come and go for every church, but you must be hopeful. You must persevere. You must remain dependent on God in prayer. And lastly, he says, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Now, what's striking about this last phrase is that we are commanded to care for one another right after being reminded of all of life's trials and tribulations. Point is that even when life is hard, Christian, Christ still requires you to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, because those times of trials are exactly when that suffering saint needs your loving care. And vice versa, those times of trials that you find yourself in are precisely when you need to get your eyes off of yourself and onto others as you serve them. And the word here is to contribute. Well, we get our word for koinonia, fellowship, uh, meaning, meaning to participate or share in or fellowship in something. The, the idea here is that person's need is my need, my provision is their provision. 
whether it's money, groceries, meal, meals, or whether it's biblical knowledge and understanding or time or energy or comfort or encouragement or whatever else you have that they need. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And even in our trials and difficult times, he says, we need to pursue hospitality as well. Hospitality is literally the the love of strangers. But strangers aren't the only ones that you can be hospitable to. I think some, sometimes people will uh, you know, say, well, I'm looking for a stranger, but the stranger doesn't want to come over or, or whatever else. And they, they contain it to just people I've never met. That's not the point of the word. The idea is to open your home to those who do not live in your home. That's a simple understanding of this word. Open your home to those who don't live in your home. You can't really practice hospitality to your children who live with you, right? You're just doing your responsibility. But anybody else that doesn't live with you, you can practice hospitality with. The idea here is um, to welcome outsiders of any degree into your life. And you can do this with a three-bedroom house or with a studio apartment. You can't. Now, I know we all have close friendships and relationships within a church. And those are necessary and wonderful things to have. You ought to have close friends. And they ought to be part of your church. And it's okay to have your clique or your tight group, your tight-knit group. It's okay as long as you are regularly bringing in outsiders to that group. See the difference? You can have close relationships, but, but if it's just you and them, you're disobedient. You can have those and then bring new people in and let them share in what you have with hopes that they might be grafted into that relationship even. Who knows? And you are to be pursuing this kind of hospitality, church. Literally, you should be chasing down those people that you haven't talked to in a while or haven't seen before or are just a little newer to the church. Practically, chase them down in the parking lot. I've had to do that with some of you. (laughs) Try and scoot out of here quickly and you're not getting away from me because I love you and I care for you. But this should be, not, it's not just my job, it's all of ours. Chase them down in the parking lot. Introduce yourself. Invite them to lunch today. Whether it's at your house or at a restaurant, whatever. Uh, initiate spending time with people. And again, these are just, this is also towards not just the newer people, but to the people that have been here forever, but are just not part of that close group. Initiate times of spending time with one another by opening your home to the brethren or initiating times of fellowship in a public setting. Just go out somewhere and do something. However mundane or special that outing might be. Pursue those things. Church, we must be pursuing a gospel church culture together. Culture is made up of many people. So a handful of people don't define a culture. This is why we need all of the saints to buy in on this. And so I ask you that you would help change the culture of our church. We're on the right trajectory. But if there's anywhere where we can maybe give a little bit more energy and focus, it's this. Each believer must be marked by this humble unity with one another, by a zeal service towards the church, and a loving care for the brethren. If we're marked by these things, then what will happen is God will be glorified, and you will love to come here on a Sunday. And both are good. Let's strive for this church. Stand with me as we pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us and, and mold us, Lord. I know for myself, uh, there are many ways in which I need to get better at these things. Oh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would work on our hearts to apply what we've heard today. And that we would give it the attention that it deserves, Lord. I pray, Lord, that all the world would know that we are believers by our love for one another. Oh, Lord, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be known as that kind of church? May we strive for that goal for your namesake, Lord, not for us, but for you. And we'll give you the glory and all the credit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.